Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 2, the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. We have a picture here throughout the end of this chapter of what God intended for humanity, what God intended for His creation. And it's a beautiful picture. And some of this uh, goes back uh, just a bit and, and describes in more detail some of uh, what God did when he created the man and he created the woman. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. These records that the Lord provided for us tell us an incredible story. Verse 4 continues, it says, At that time the Lord, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all of the ground. Here in the second half of verse 4, it's the first time that the word Lord is used in all of Scripture. This is the uh, term that we might pronounce Yahweh in the original language. This is the covenantal name of God. God goes by many titles in all of the uh, Hebrew Scripture and even in the New Testament. Uh, but this name is very particular. And it was uh, a name that was revealed later to Moses when Moses and uh, the Lord met in Exodus chapters 3 and 4 at the burning bush. Uh, but this is the covenantal name of God, which means God is relating to us here. So there's something personal when we use the term Lord, when it refers to this name Yahweh. And, um, and then we read about the plants. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. We, we hear this idea about the plant of the field. It's, it, it's not yet sprouted, but uh, there, there's something that coming in, uh, in chapter 3. Uh, where there's going to be uh, in an, inter an interaction between humans and uh, the fruit from a, a particular tree. And uh, so we, we may have a little bit of a foreshadowing here. And we, we have this idea that mist would come up from the earth and water all of the ground. And you might, you might wonder, well, what, what in the world was going on here? What, what does that mean? Mist was coming up from the ground. Well, I'll tell you what it means. I have no idea what it means, but other than, <laughs> other than mist was actually coming up from the ground and watering the earth, okay? So uh, we weren't there to see it, to record it, take video or anything else, so, uh, but that's what was happening. The, the Bible has a tendency to speak very plainly about these things, and so however God did it, whatever the scientific process was, I don't know, uh, that's up to the Lord, but that's, that was the dynamic of what was actually happening, happening at the time. And we, this idea of water coming up 
from the ground? Well, we're going we're gonna to see that theme again later when we get to chapter 7 with a guy named Noah. And so again, we may have a little bit of a foreshadowing of things to come. Uh, but so far, everything seems to be pretty fine. And in verse 7, the next verse, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The word formed is used. The Lord God formed. God is described here as if he is an artist. As if he is a, a maker of something from that, that was formerly clay. As if we are a potter, a pottery, a vessel, if you will. And, and God himself is the potter that makes us. And if God is considered to be an artist, he must be, he must be a, a master artist. And if he is a master artist, then that should tell us something about us. The we, there's a sense in which we are a masterpiece. The way you are made, the way you are made is a masterpiece. You think about all of the, the red blood cells, for example, in your body, the white blood cells in your body. What an incredible work of art you are. The nerves that run through your body. Everything that God did when he made humanity, when he made you and me with this first man, God made it in such a unique way. And we need to remember our place. If we are the vessel and he is the potter. Isaiah chapter 45 says, Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, What are you making? I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded everything in them. We might have many questions, even questions that we would ask God, but let us go to him with the right attitude. We are the vessel. He is the potter. And God made us out of the dust from the ground. You know, it is to dust that we will return. That tells us something interesting. It tells us that our, our origins become our future. For we began as a, as a race, if you will, as a special creation of God. That will be our future as well. However, as believers, God has promised us a greater destiny than simply to return to the dust because we will receive glorified bodies one day that will never, ever decay. And then it says that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. This is something that God did with us that he did not do with any other living creature. God got up close.
God became personal. God became very intimate. And he gave man his breath, the very breath of God himself. God gave of himself when he created us. No animal has the capacity for that kind of relationship with God. There's no creature on earth that has the capacity to relate to God as intimately and personally as you do. And that's what God desires. He wants to know you intimately, personally. And we read, and the man became a living being. King James says a living soul. The man became a living being. Something you should understand. Later this same phrase, a living being, is used of animals. Okay? And so animals, much like us, become living. Become alive. Unlike rocks. Unlike dirt. Unlike water, really. There's something different about animals And there's something that we share with animals. We become very much alive, but there's something unique about us that distinguishes us from the animals. God breathed his very breath into us. And only us, only we humans, are made in the very image of God. Then we read in the next verse, in verse 8, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's talk about Eden for a minute. This garden we call Eden. Eden is the place where man, and when I say man, I'm using the term Uh, very, very broadly, as God himself used it in the previous chapter to mean male and female, okay? So when, when man wants to experience God in all of his fullness, that happens in this place called Eden. Eden is the very garden of God. And we learn in chapter 3 that, that God will be walking in the garden. And there, we learn here that there are trees in this garden. Trees are very interesting study in Scripture. Sometime, when you have more time, and by the way, one of the goals that I have in this presentation of chapter 2 is that you might be provoked, you might be inspired to go back and to study some things more deeply than we have time for today. One of the things that I would challenge you to study is the role of trees in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, people have spiritual encounters close to trees. It's an interesting dynamic. Trees actually become almost holy or sacred because there are places throughout the Old Testament where God or an angel or the angel of the Lord met someone and had a dialogue at a tree. And these trees are markers. God and man encountered one another at certain trees in Scripture. And it it tells us something that's very interesting 
about trees because man's going to have a different kind of encounter with a certain tree in chapter 3, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we read here in, in this passage that not only is Eden a garden, but it's a place where God met man. And then in Ezekiel chapter 28, in that, that great passage of where uh, it seems like the Lord is uh, giving a judgment, giving us, uh, he's speaking to the king of Tyre, actually. But a lot of people think that it's the Lord dialoguing in a symbolic way with Satan himself. But then we read this in that chapter. You, meaning the king of Tyre, or maybe Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. I want you to understand something a lot of people don't know about Eden. Eden was not only a, a garden, but it was a mountain. It was the mountain of God. And that's something else that you, you could look at in Scripture and find a, a lot of interesting things. That God happened to encounter people in the high places. This is the holy mountain of God. You think about Mount Sinai being the mountain of God. The temple itself was built on the highest point in Jerusalem, geographically the highest point. Synagogues all throughout ancient Israel were always built on the highest point in the town. And that way people would do, as it says throughout the Old Testament in a number of different places, that people went up to worship the Lord. They would ascend to worship the Lord. Even the king's palace, even King David's palace in Jerusalem was beneath where the temple would be built later by his son. The tabernacle, the temple itself, were also decorated in ways that reminded people of Eden. And so we have this beautiful place called Eden. Again, in the previous verse, in verse uh, Genesis chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the, in the east, and there he, made the, he placed the man he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden. Here we have this incredible tree of life. What's the tree of life do? You eat of it, and you have continued life, eternal life, if you will. We read about the tree of life making another appearance in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus himself said, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then you get to the last chapter of the entire Bible. Revelation 22, and it begins this way. John writes, Then he showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Christian, there's coming a day when you and I will see that for ourselves. 
will see and be able to partake of the tree of life. But there's another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating of this tree does not grant you eternal life, but eating of this tree actually removes something from you. It removes man's innocence. And by removing man's innocence, it does this by giving man knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. If man eats of this tree, it's going to be disastrous. Everything in the garden that God had created, everything that man experienced was good. But if the man ate of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this would not be a good act by man because then man would know both good and evil. And people say, well, what's wrong with knowing evil? You know, you do something wrong and you learn not to do it again. You know, you burn your hand and you learn not to do it again. Well, there's a problem there. The problem is not that the lesson is learned. That indeed might be okay. But you burn your hand. You get scarred. And if man eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then man becomes scarred by what he knows. Really corrupted by what he knows. And so when you know evil, it corrupts you. Now you can have two kinds of people. One person who's never taken drugs who says, Hey, don't shoot up heroin. It's a bad idea. And then you can have another person who has actually done it. And they can tell you the same thing. Don't shoot up heroin. It's a bad idea. One of the two will be corrupted by it. One of the two will have scars by it. God does not want the man to eat of the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when you eat of that tree, when you engage in that evil, do you become wiser in a certain way? Sure you do. Yeah, you do. You knew something you didn't know before, but you were also corrupted by it. And when you're corrupted by evil, that brings another enemy into your life. A terrible enemy. An enemy that we will discuss in just a moment. In the next verse, we read in verse 10, A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the man, the man was placed by the Lord into the garden, and the man was given a job. 
Let me just tell you right now, work is not a curse. Might feel like a curse. But work itself is not a curse. Work is a God-given assignment. God gave man work to do before there was ever sin in the world. God gave man a job, and God gave man a command. And the command was, do not eat of this tree. Actually, the command was, everything else in the garden, good to go. Everything else on the earth, you're good to go. One thing, don't do this one thing. Do not eat of this tree. So in Genesis chapter 1, God set up boundaries and separations. You remember that on day one? He separated the light from the darkness. God separated the air above from the water beneath. He separated the land from the water. Three separations we learn about in Genesis chapter 1. Well, now there's another separation. There's another boundary. And the boundary is do not eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The boundaries that God sets up are for our own good. And so the Lord gave man a penalty for disobeying him. And this is the enemy that comes in once we corrupt ourselves by engaging in evil. The enemy is the worst enemy that you and I will ever experience. It is the enemy that you and I, by ourselves, cannot defeat. It is death. Death is the enemy. And death comes to the, to the one who eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to his descendants. And so in the next verse, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. This is amazing. This verse is absolutely amazing. There's no sin in the world. Nobody has sinned. And yet, everything else God said in chapter 1 was, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good on day 7. It was, it was very good. Everything. God stepped, stepped back and he said, it is very good. But here, in spite of there not being sin in the world, God says, it's not good. Something is not good. What is not good? It is not good that the man is alone. Why is it not good? Because something's missing. What's wrong with being alone? Well, the man's going to get lonely, number one. And that's a problem. Second problem is the man can't rule the world by himself, not the single solitary man. God wants the earth to be filled with people to rule his world. In fact, God gave that command to fill the earth. But the man can't do it by himself. Why can't the man do it by himself? Ask your mom or dad. They'll be glad to tell you. So the Lord decides that he's going to make a helper corresponding to the man. We know if we've read the end of this chapter or if we have any common sense at all in our brains that this helper is going to be a woman. Right? The word helper does not mean slave. Gentlemen and ladies, in your marriage, the wife is not the slave. How do I know helper doesn't mean slave? Because later in Scripture, 
the same term is used of God himself, that God is our helper. Well, God is certainly not our slave. Okay, if anything, it's the other way around. And so, but God is going to make a helper. What the word helper means is a perfect complement. It is someone who's going to fill in what the man is missing, providing what the man is missing. You see, in Scripture, men and women are of equally infinite worth in God's eyes. And in His wisdom, He's given us different roles. And so we read in the next verse, The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man... No, no helper was found corresponding to him. A couple of things I'd point out. Number one, the man named all of the animals. And just like on day one, when God himself called the light, or called the brightness of the day, light and the darkness, he named it as well. Here the man is going to name all of the animals. Naming something means that you have authority over it. But then the man noticed that all of the animals had a mate. No helper was found corresponding to the man. And so God himself took all of these animals and he brought them to the man so the man could name it. And the man probably kept noticing, you know, there seems to be two elephants there. There seems to be two hippos there. There seems to be two rabbits there. Quickly, many more rabbits. There seems to be a whole bunch of these other animals. But there's only one me. And so I think the man began to feel it in his soul, in the depths of his heart, that he needed a somebody that was like him. And so this plan of the Lord to bring all of these animals to the man, I think, had its intended Effect, And then we read in the next verse. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. Uh, I love that overemphasis on sleeping. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Let's talk about this deep sleep for a minute. This, the Lord had caused the man to go into a deep sleep. Why? Because in a few moments, or however long it took, when the man woke up, he'd be surprised. In other words, for a time, the man didn't know what was going on. He was, a, he was unconscious. And as a prelude to marriage in all of human history, the man doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> it's true. Ladies, have you ever looked at your husband, and he just had a blank look on his face? And, and you, you, you ask him, what are you thinking about? And what does he say? He said, nothing. <laughs> Don't get mad at him. It's true. He's literally thinking about nothing. 
built within every man is this uncanny ability to go into a deep sleep, even when he's conscious, and not think about a thing. It's, it's incredible. And ladies, you think, well, the, you know, my, my husband, he has brain damage or something. Something's wrong with him. Oh, no. This, this is not a problem your husband have. It's a gift that we enjoy. Anyway, in Genesis 2, when the man fell into a deep sleep, this allowed the creation of the woman to be a mystery. Where did she come from? Only God knows. Right? Where did this one come from? And so when the man woke up, not only was it a mystery where she come from, it was an incredible surprise. And so once the man fell asleep, God took one of his ribs. Really, this word rib means side. God, God took a chunk out of Adam's side. And he made the rib, the scripture says. Literally, the word is he built the woman from this side. The word built is a different word than the word create. When God made man, he created the man. He created the, the heavens and the earth. You know, God, God created things out of nothing. But this, this word means he, he built. God used some pre-existing material to build the woman. And apparently, given the man's reaction that we'll get to in just a minute, she was built to his liking. And God brought her to the man. Now that is an incredible gift. An incredible gift. Men, if you have a wife, you should thank the Lord for his wonderful gift. And the man said in verse 23, and this is a poem. I think a Contemporary, just a spontaneous poem. He said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. You got to remember, the man had seen that one, he saw that elephant, and he saw that hippo, and he saw that rabbit. And he saw all of those things, but this one, at last, she is what? She is, she's from my side. She's from this chunk that the Lord took out of my life. She is bone and flesh, just like me. And then the man named the woman, just like he had named the animals, just like the Lord had named the light and the darkness. The man named the woman. He said, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And then we read in the next verse, verses 24 and 25, this is why, and this is a commentary by the original author. This is why. A man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. But the man and his wife were naked, 
yet felt no shame. Here we have the very first marriage that God himself supernaturally put together. Let me tell you just a couple of things about marriage. There's a very important verse. This verse is quoted in the New Testament repeatedly. A man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife. Marriage means leaving father and mother. It means you leave your father and mother. Your family of origin becomes secondary when you get married. What's your most important family? Used to be mom and dad. But when you get married, they get pushed to secondary status. Now, those of us that are old enough to have kids who dare to do that to us, we get offended by that. We don't like that. But you know the reality, and so do I, that if mama and daddy are interfering into a marriage, it ain't good. Why? Because a marriage is two people, not mama and daddy, not in-laws. It ain't six. It's not three. It's two. The only third person in a marriage is God himself. Okay? There has to be a leaving, a cutting off, to a degree at least, of mom and dad when you get married. And then the flip side of that is the bonding or the cleaving to the wife. Marriage means bonding or cleaving to your wife. You have a new first family. And that results in this, in this incredible thing called marriage where two people, two distinct people with two different sets of parents, they become one. One person. Only a man and a woman can become one flesh. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. There might be some kind of same-sex homosexual activity going on. But it ain't marriage. Marriage is the cleaving of a man and a woman together. And they become one. Someone says, oh, I, I don't like that. God didn't ask what you liked. <laughs> marriage is not something you get to define. It's not something the government gets to define. Because you and the government didn't create marriage. They can call something marriage, but it's not marriage. Real marriage is what God made. God created marriage. He sets the parameters. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. God designed marriage to be such. Marriage means that there's nothing separating the two of you that are married. Don't let things interfere in your marriage. Don't let it. All throughout your life, all throughout your married life, there will be opportunities, if you will, for outside interferences to come in and mess up what God has put together. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen even if it's 
your parents or her parents, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen if it's your job or her job. Don't let it interrupt your marriage. Don't let it happen no matter what it is that might come in and interfere with this incredible relationship that God has given you. Don't let anything come in and mess it up. You see, what we have in Genesis chapter 2 is God's ideal for humanity. The problem with Genesis 2 is Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. And where sin enters the world, things get messed up. Sin, in fact, messed up a lot of things. But sin did not mess up God's love for us. Sin cannot mess up that. That stands the test of time. Eventually in the story, if you fast forward far enough, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into this world. We call him Jesus. And Jesus lived a life without sin. The only one of us to ever do that. He lived a life without sin. And Jesus died on the cross. Why? To pay for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave. Why? To defeat the enemy that we cannot defeat. To defeat death. One of the benefits for that is when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive eternal life. We defeat death too. If you and I will trust in the Lord Jesus, trust in God's plan, then we will one day receive all of the benefits of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth created just for us. It will be like Eden, only better. If this is a message that you believe and you're ready to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ as part of your belief, we invite you to come to Him in faith.